Well, hello and welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Fredland. Excited to be bringing you this week's episode. The Rec Poker Podcast is officially sponsored by Running Aces and also sponsored by the Free Poker Network. So thanks, you guys. On this week's episode, I sit down with World Series of Poker bracelet winner Chris Fox Wallace for some great conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy that. For many of you, you guys are all out playing the World Series of Poker or maybe making plans to go to the World Series of Poker. I, myself, am heading out to Vegas. I'm going to spend about a week out there, uh, probably only playing one bracelet event, and that is the Marathon. Otherwise, going to be looking to play some of the dailies, uh, maybe at the Rio, maybe at Planet Hollywood, maybe at other places around. So always looking for suggestions there. But it's really fun time of year for poker fans. And for me, I'm super excited to be going out there with three of my buddies and uh, hopefully come back with some phenomenal stories. Uh, while I'm out there, I'm hoping to actually maybe track down a few folks and do uh, get some sound bites from them, do a little interview with them, and get some insight from some other players who might be out in Vegas at the time. I also want to take a second just to thank all of you who have been supporting us, uh, those of you who have been super encouraging, those of you who are listening regularly and telling your, telling your friends. Uh, we've seen the numbers grow, and we're super excited about that. But we want to keep providing you with good content. So please reach out. Let me know what you like, what you don't like. You can follow us and give me comments on Twitter, at RecPoker. We've got a Facebook group, RecPoker. Or reach out to stevefredland at gmail.com and just let me know directly. Or just find me in the poker room and and give me your thoughts. With that, uh, why don't we turn it over and join the conversation that I had with Fox. Well, welcome everybody. Uh, pleased to be joined by by Skype with uh, Chris Fox Wallace. Chris, uh, first of all, man, thanks for joining us. Uh, no problem. I'll support anything you do, man. I oh, appreciate that. Anything, huh? Well, that that kind of opens up the opens up the door for a lot of different things. <laughs> uh, you um, know, the, what you do for I mean, we're right along the same path in what our concerns are about how to make the world a better place, and what you do with Island for Africa is really cool. So, if you've got stuff that I can help with. Bring it on! Oh man, thanks for that. So now you're you're calling uh, from Vegas, right? That's right. Now for I'm those who don't know, now are are you full time in Vegas, or are you still kind of going back and forth, Minnesota to Vegas? What's your deal there? I guess I can officially say I live in Vegas now. It's been kind of I don't know where I live for the last year or so. Um, I've you know been back and forth a lot, and but I finally got rid of my place in Minnesota about a month ago. So. I guess I live here now, although I, okay. I was in Minnesota for a week last week, so who knows. Yeah. Now, I think the the world really wants to know. So the nickname Fox, where does that come from? <laughs> <laughs> um, a martial arts teacher many years ago used the term to describe me that was kind of like, uh, it was it's Fox in Japanese, but it's not really... Um, uh, it's not really the animal. Um, and it, it, basically what he was saying was you're a pain in the ass in kind of a charming <laughs> way. Um, and that sort of stuck in my head. And then uh, when I needed an online screen name for Planet Poker, which is the very first poker online poker website that was kind of the way that the modern websites are, um, I just used Fox. And when I signed up for PocketFives.com, uh, you know, you need a, a, a name for the boards and I used Fox. And when I started writing for pocket fives, writing a blog for them, that was the first time that anybody ever knew who I was, um, was when I was writing a blog for pocket fives. Hmm. 
I had a, t- a ton of readers on my blog, like in the first six months, I was very surprised by it because I was playing $30 sit and goes for a living on party poker. Yeah. And I didn't, I wasn't sure anybody would care about that, but it turns out people did. And so I had a, a ton of readers for that, for about a year and a half, two years there on my blog on pocket fives and people then knew me as Fox. Okay. So that, that, that stuck enough that when I would see people in the poker world, they would go, Oh, you're Fox from pocket fives. And I just kind of became Fox. But, um, I, I, my friends call me Chris as well as Fox. It depends on the person. So, and I don't really have a preference, but that's kind of how it all got started. Okay. Well, well, kind of going back then, you you mentioned some of the stuff, but how did, I mean, how did you get started in poker? Like, is this something that from a very young age you've always been interested in or what, what got Chris Wallace into, into the game in the first place? Well, I'd always kind of played home games here and there, playing dealer's choice games in apartments. And, um, you know, I lived in a co-op for a while where we'd throw a poker game to to pay the rent when we needed to. And But I wasn't any good, and I didn't know what I was doing, and I'd actually never played Hold'em. And uh, I have a friend who ended up being the co-author of my book, Adam Stemple, mm-hmm. who has been a semi-pro poker player for 25 or 30 years. And... Uh, I was very comfortable with playing cards for money. I'd been counting cards in blackjack on and off for years. And I um, got a message. I got a, a, a bit of terrible news from an allergist who I had had an allergic reaction that almost killed me three times in the space of a couple of months. And mm. we couldn't figure out what was doing it. And I walked into an allergist's office and he said, do you work with exotic hardwoods? And I said, yes. And he said, not anymore. You'll Mm. die. So um, my career as a guitar builder was over, like in in an instant. And I didn't have a fallback plan. Because who does? If you're a carpenter, you're a carpenter. Right, yeah. Um, So I started driving cab and thinking about what to do for a living. What was my next career going to be? And uh, I knew that. And how old were you about this at this time? Uh, geez, 31, okay. maybe 32. So early 30s, 30. yeah, okay. I guess I was probably 30. Um, so you get this big shocking news that you have to figure out what to do with the rest of your life. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I knew that Adam played played poker very seriously, and so I asked him about it and said, do you think it, you know, is it something that somebody could do for a living? And he said, you? Yeah, I think so. Hmm. Uh, and he and he brought me a couple of poker books the next time I saw him, and I devoured them and realized all the strategy that was really involved in the game. So I uh, started studying hard. I bought every poker book I could get my hands on, which was about seven or eight books back then, <laughs> um, and uh, took notes in the margins and filled notebooks full of, you know, I, I kind of decided right away, I'm going to play poker for a living. Yeah. Having never have played a hand of Hold'em or played a hand in a casino or online. And um, I studied like hell. I spent six months in, in when I was driving cab uh, with a poker book in the in the other seat with me. Anytime I wasn't moving, I was studying and taking notes. And I filled notebooks full of notes. And I then I would go through them. And if I knew everything on the page, then I would tear out the page. And when I ended up with just the cardboard top and bottom and the spiral and no paper, then I felt like I'd learned something. And I I spent six months doing that, studying in all my spare time 
And at the end of that six months, I was making too much money playing poker to go to work anymore, driving cabs, so I quit. Oh, that's fantastic. Wow. I mean, that, that shows you that the work that goes into I mean, sometimes people just think, oh, they just stumbled into something. And in, in a way, you kind of did, but you put the work in to, to make it happen. So, like, what, which, are there one or two of those books that stood out as the most influential? Yeah. Well, um, there are a number of books uh, by Mason Malmuth and David Sklansky, or just by Mason Malmuth, that that uh, talk about how gambling works. There's the the theory of poker, and there's a bunch of books on books of essays that may or may not still be in print, and and they they just teach you about gambling and about concepts that are important. I think those are really helpful for me to know that. Um, to, to bad beats as a good example, um, you know, if if poker wasn't a game where there's lots of bad beats and the bad players frequently can win, we wouldn't be able to make any money at right. it. Because if you take all the variants out of the game, nobody makes any money because right. the bad players don't want to play. Yep. That's why chess players don't make any money. Um, you know, if you if you want a, a zero variance game, you can go play chess, and and the best players are going to almost always win, and then you can. You know, the best chess player in the world could be giving lessons for 80 bucks an hour um, <laughs> trying to survive, you know? Right, yep. Otherwise, you can play poker and deal with the beats. You got, I bet there are a thousand poker players, professional poker players, who make more money than the than the world's best chess player. It's just, it's just a, you know, right. the variance actually is really, really good for us, and you have to appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And that's just one of like 50 concepts that were covered in those books that helped me understand the world of gambling. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Sklansky's Hold'em for Advanced Players was kind of the the book on limit hold'em back in the day. Okay. And that was a big help for me because a, a lot of how I made my living at first was just grinding the 816 game at Canterbury and then playing limit hold'em games online when I started playing online at, at Planet Poker. And so uh, that book definitely helped me a lot but but the you know the, the essays books are still useful hold them for advanced players isn't all that useful anymore there there's a few much better books on the game and it's not as good as it used to be yeah so what are you so now you you've kind of advanced through the ranks and i know you've done a number of different games and we'll talk a little bit about your bracelet and all the different you know variations of the game that you played there yeah, but... i like talking about the bracelet yeah, I, I imagine. <laughs> I've seen it; it's fantastic. But, but before then, give give us a, a high level snapshot of what are you playing now? I mean, are you doing live only, online, cash tournaments? Uh, which games are you playing? What's kind of your sweet spot now that you enjoy playing the most? I'm playing online some uh, here in Vegas. We've got WSOP.com, which is pretty good. Um, it, it's not big enough just with the state of Nevada. The player pool is big enough to really make lots of money, but um, it's not bad. So I do play on there sometimes. I play tournaments and some cash games. There's a few mixed games here and there. And then uh, I play a huge variety of things. You know, I'm not starving, and I don't need to grind the, you know, the one three no limit hold them every single night to survive. So I can really kind of do a lot of different things and not have to play the biggest game in the room either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and I have a lot of poker ADD, which is why I've played <laughs> so many different things. I played, uh, when I was playing online, I played no limit cash games for a living for a year or two. I played mixed games for a living for like three years. I played sit and goes. I played multi-table sit and goes. I played tournaments. I played everything for a living 
uh, for a while, and I keep bouncing around with games, which has been helpful with mixed games. So um, how, how intentional is that? I mean, is it just more of, hey, what do I feel like playing today or this week or this month? Or are you intentionally trying to be strategic about mixing it up? Or is it just, you know, what's available, what the opportunity is, and what my interest is at the time? It's really not strategic. It's, um, well, there is a lot of strategy in how I change the game, and I think about where the good games are and what how I can make money, and I pay attention to how much I make in different games. A lot of it is just that I, I if I play a game consistently for a while, I start to hate it. I get tired of it. Mm, okay. I've played over a million hands of No Limit Hold'em Cash. <laughs> I don't ever want to play it again. I have to because I, I have bills to pay, but um, I don't care if I ever play it again. And that's why I switched to mixed games online was because I just couldn't stand to look at it, you know another screen <laughs> with eight tables and No Limit Hold'em on it. Right. Um, so so you played about a million over a million hands. Have you ever had Aces cracked? Has that ever happened to you? No. No, okay. So you haven't had to tell a bad beat story about... It doesn't happen to good players, and, and also <laughs> I run really good, and I just don't have those kind of problems. That's right. Well, against me, I know that's true. <laughs> I feel bad for the people who do. I run into lots of players who run really bad, but I just don't, so... Yeah, exactly. The the variance seems to escape you, which is very nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so yeah. let's talk a little bit about the World Series of Poker. It's, you know, we're recording this on June 1st, so we're right, you know, getting into the season. I know you even have your first bracelet event coming up here but let's talk a little bit of history first before we talk about what's coming up this year. Uh, I looked at Hendon Mob, and you, you know you've been cashing consistently in the World Series of Poker each year. But uh, let's t- take us back first of all. Let's go 2014. Let's go bracelet. What was that like? I mean, how you know for those of us who can only dream of something like that, that's really not even a potential reality. Like, what was that? Either the moment or the the leading up to it. You know, describes sort of that that emotion of that victory you know it's interesting that it, if you took me right now and dropped me at a final table um in an event that that big i would probably be nervous i think any of us would but it's such a slow run-up to that situation it was three mm-hmm. days of poker that and also by the end of the day you're, you're getting fairly tired so even though you're wired because of the amount of money and the competitive level of competition involved you don't have that that huge anxiety. It really, it, it you, you don't notice it at the time. Hmm. Um, I only noticed it when I went on break. I would leave the final table to go on break, go out in the hallway, and be wired and vibrating and nervous and thinking about a million things. <laughs> and then as soon as I got back to the table, totally calm again. Just do what you know to do. Yeah, and do what you've been doing for three days and. And also, once you get to that point, I remember when we got to five-handed, I think fifth place was 130000 or something. Yeah. Um, and I remember thinking, well, there's no reason to be nervous. I've already made one hundred thirty grand. Right. You know, it, it, it can't go badly. Um, so, so the- then that kind of takes care of it, too. I think there's almost more nerves when you've got two tables left and you've only locked up, you know, 30000 or 20000 and there's a half a million and... You know, I've had a number of those finishes where I've been, you know, top 30 in a tournament that pays half a million or more for first place. I've had a bunch of those, and I was yeah. very frustrated with it. Yeah. Um, actually, my friend Grant uh, told me before the series in 2014, I think you're running bad in big spots and big events, and I think you're due for one. Hmm. And, uh, sure enough, and he was actually there. <laughs> he was actually there for part of the final table. So. Sweet. Actually, yeah. actually, you might not even know this. I actually saw you 
at the final table for a little bit. That was the only other year I've ever been out in Vegas. I was there for something else, and I got to actually watch a little bit of your final table, and then it just got to be too late. <laughs> I had to go to bed, but... Uh, yeah, it was really late by the time we by the time we were done, and then I got paid out and everything. I think it was like six thirty or seven in the morning. Was right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's pretty phenomenal. So I mean, as it so I mean the the nerves and you know kind of on break and you come back as it goes to five to four to three to two, it, are the nerves building or is it still just you know what this is what I do? I you know the money's great each step of the way. Um, did you feel more pressure to try to get that bracelet as it went, or was it really just? Nope. Now I now I just changed my game to playing three handed now to two handed and I, I I don't think that I felt a lot of pressure um, at the time, but I do remember the the one thing that that kind of would indicate that there was something there was that when they brought the bracelet out and set it between me and Randy all the guy I was heads up with yeah um, I wouldn't look at it hmm. I wasn't gonna look at it until it was mine I didn't even want to know <laughs> I didn't want to know what it looked like. I didn't want to think about it unless it was actually mine. So uh, that, maybe there that's an indicator that there were some nerves there. But uh, the heads-up battle was very short. Um, I had a significant chip lead and ran good. You know, Randy's a world-class player. He's got a number of bracelets of his own, and he's a very good mixed game player. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was, you know, there wasn't a lot of outplaying him. It was really, you know, I had a big chip lead and and ran good, and I think heads up played you know lasted less than 20 hands oh wow might have been it might have been less than 10 hands even it was it was pretty short um well that's great stuff hey chris i'm just going to jump in here real quick i just want to remind the folks about our official sponsor running aces casino and racetrack has the best poker room in minnesota featuring 24 7 promos on all cash poker games including earning two dollars per hour in comps plus the most player-friendly tourney structures Visit RunAces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. So, so talk a little bit about you know the the podcast. We have listeners you know at every different skill level and different geographies. But I know a number of the folks that are listening uh, are fairly new. You know, Rec Poker is designed to try to move uh, people from you know maybe their home games and their bar leagues into the the you know the starting tournament at the at running aces in Canterbury Park and then move up from there try to get the 280 to play 1100 and, and so on and so forth so I think a, a number of people aren't super familiar with what uh, your your bracelet is in the horse event so maybe you know just quickly what are the different events that make that up does it rotate by orbit or by time or how does that work and then uh, maybe just talk a little bit about what was your what, you know which game do you feel like really propelled you to the bracelet out of all of those Horse is uh, a mix of five games, though the initials horse for Hold'em, Omaha, Raz, Stud, and Stud 8 are better. Um, it changes every eight hands. So the dealer will have eight little buttons, and they move one each time they play a hand, and then you'll flip the plaque to the next game. And Okay, so um, even heads so, up, it's eight hands. Yep. Oh, okay. Um, all so the we- games are limit, fixed limit, as Mixed games generally are all fixed limit games. Other, you know, in the ten game event, there will be a few. Um, there, you know, a pot limit and two no limit games. Um, and the ten k horse. Uh, when I was first starting out, um, I remember having conversations with uh, with Adam Stemple and a few other people about about you know who the best players in the world really are. Are they these guys we see on TV and 
who are these guys? And and one of the things that I always thought was, well, it's probably the 10K horse winner. That's probably really the, and now they've got the players championship with right. the $50,000 buy-in and this and a similar mixed game structure. Um, but back in those days, I thought, guy, the guy that wins the 10K horse, that's you don't want to mess with that guy. So it, was, it really was the event. And then once I started playing a ton of horse on my own and a ton of mixed games online, um, then it became really the, the event that I would have picked to win. You know, Other than the money that you get from the main event, really in terms of, of what I would have chosen to win, the 10K horse really would have been it. So it was, it was a remarkable stroke of luck for me. And... It really changed so many things for me. Uh, when I was coming off the, you know, when played in the little Thunder Dome with the cameras and the whole right. uh, table set up, and when I was coming off the stage, Chad Holloway was there. Mm-hmm. He's a poker reporter from Wisconsin, and he's an, uh, a player. He's the media manager or something for the MSPT now. And in 2013, I think, it was 2013 or 2012, he won the the, uh, the dealer's event bracelet. Right. And... He was the first person as I kind of walked off after the interviews and the, the pictures and stuff and shook my hand and said, it's going to change your life. And I thought, he's crazy. It's not going to – it's really not because I know that that idea that you win a bracelet and then you're suddenly a famous poker player on private jets to every tournament is <laughs> is completely bullshit. <laughs> right. um, it's just not real. And people have this idea that this – you know, I've joked about bracelets being shiny trinkets for – 10 years now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that they're not, they're not life-changing things. They're neat. They're like a bowling trophy, but I was wrong and he was right. Um, it didn't change my life in any of those ways, but it did change my life really significantly. Um, I've been very competitive since I was a kid. I've been nearly world-class in a number of things, things where I've been competitive and never quite gotten there. Um, hmm. and in, in this, uh, I'm there. You know, yeah. I, I knew that I was playing with the best players in the world, playing mixed games online. I have, you know, I know my win rates from Poker Tracker against all these red name pros from Full Tilt. I know that, you know, at 200, 400 in the mixed games, it got to the point where almost nobody would play me, and the people who did play me were losing against me. And I, you know, I knew that I was good. I could prove it to myself. But it's different when you win a world championship. It it, it kind of knocks the chip off your shoulder. Um, mm. I don't have to prove anything to anybody anymore. Right. If, if 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 winning a world championship isn't enough for them, nothing's going to be. And I don't <laughs> care about their opinion. And and that really makes life easier. Um, you know, I should never have cared about their opinion, but I did. You do. It's yeah. a thing we do yeah. as humans. We do care. Um, you know, now it's just now I just go and play whatever game makes me the most money and makes me happy that night. And I don't have any, I don't have to feel stressed about it and, and, uh, I can do whatever and not worry about it. And it really, it changed the way I look at the whole world and it changed my life very significantly. It, you know, it didn't make me a lot of extra money. I don't have endorsement deals flying in any faster than I did before or anything, mm-hmm. but, but it did really, uh, kind of set me at ease in terms of as a competitor and as a poker player. And I would think even from a, a confident perspective, I mean, you're you're you seem to be a very confident guy anyway. But you know, especially if you've been proving to yourself that you can do this, but there's not a public showing of that, and if you've been running bad toward the end of the big tournaments, I would think there is this sort of this confidence piece that says, "All right, yeah, you know, I I can do it. I have done it," um, and kind of takes that to the next level. So, 
um, boy, I would, I would think that would, that would change your life in that way as well. And, and also, you know, I mean, I think, you know, you're a good enough player that I probably would have you on the podcast anyway. But, you know, the World Series of Poker bracelet solidified the fact that I wanted to have you on. So you may not have been on this amazing podcast had you not won the bracelet. That is maybe the biggest benefit of winning the bracelet. <laughs> I would think so. I would think so. But no, anyway, I mean, publicly, congratulations on that. I know it's been a few years. Okay. I've actually, you know, I've seen the bracelet that you brought to All in for Africa and stuff. Super cool. Uh, but now, you know, kind of going forward, you've, you've been cashing the World Series of Poker. You cashed the following year in the $3,000 horse event. Last year, I think you cashed in the little one for one drop and the monster. So, you know, what's, what's coming up this year? What are you hoping to play? How many events? That kind of thing. I don't know how many bracelet events I'll play. I, a friend asked me that yesterday, and I told him maybe maybe twelve or something. Um, we'll see. It could be more or less. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm in a really great spot. I have uh, someone who bought all of my action is backing me for all the World Series of Poker stuff for the year. I had a chunk of my own money saved up to be able to buy a lot of my own action. Mm-hmm. My plan was to sell maybe a sixty thousand dollar World Series package and you know buy half of it myself. But uh, someone came along and said, I want all of it, and, and I'll give you a good deal. So, um, And it's somebody that I've known a long time, a former student um, who's very comfortable with risk and has significant wealth and um, isn't, isn't worried about the money and, right. and, and is comfortable with risking money to make money and doing those sorts of things. So um, what he basically said was, I know that you're not going to play when you're – you know, when you're not feeling good and you're not going to waste my money, so uh, play whatever you want. Yeah. And so, you know, with and, th- and that's only for bigger stuff. Uh, smaller stuff I'm still going to play on my own dime, but uh, it, it's nice to know that I can play whatever I want whenever I want when I'm feeling good for the summer and, uh, you know, just do everything I can to make money for, for he and I and hope that it goes well. Um, that's a, a luxury that most players don't have unless they're playing on their own dime and very few players are playing a full World Series of Poker schedule on their own dime. Right. You know, if people are doing that, they're typically people who are wealthy before they started playing poker. Um, it's tough to dump sixty thousand of your own money into the World Series and, right. and hope that it works out because you can you can go all summer without hardly cashing in anything. You can be down fifty five thousand of that sixty thousand pretty easily, and um, you know that makes for a tough tough summer if it's your own money. So it's really nice for me. Um, I'm definitely going to play the 10K horse and the main, and I'll definitely play a bunch of smaller World Series events. I haven't decided on things like the 10K Raz and the 10K Dealer's Choice and uh, some of those kinds of events. Mm-hmm. Um, probably see how I feel at the time. If I if I get a ton of sleep and wake up feeling good and, right. and I'm crushing mixed games for the week, um, then I may play those events. You know, If not, I'm, I can go play a, you know, a $500 tournament at the nugget or something right. you know so so just uh from a high level perspective you know i'm always curious about the staking side of things is it one of those things where you basically converted your you know your your risk into a, a flat income or or do you still have a significant portion of the better you do the more you do personally as well i just i know i just have a percentage of what i make okay yep um it, it, it's almost it's almost unheard of for somebody to be able to just convert it into a flat income mm-hmm. that that um, that I'll pay you this much money and I just want all the money you win. Right, just paying um, you to play, basically. Yeah, it really doesn't work. 
Because uh, you need the incentive to do the better you do, the better you do personally. Yeah, the player's not motivated, and the and often the backer's not making money because people typically overestimate what the long term income is going to be on situations like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you hear all the time about backing deals that are you know. Uh, some amateur will get a, oh yeah, my friend agreed to put me in all these events at 50-50, no makeup. Um, right. and, and that deal, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for them, mm-hmm. but the best players in the world don't have deals like that right. because they're not profitable, even right. for the best players in the world. Um, typically, if you're buying somebody into one event, it's like give them 20% of their own action or 25% of their own action if you think they're really a big favorite. Right. And even that is... Um, generous we don't know it's that it's terribly long-term profitable right um, if you find a really good player who you know is going to play the right events for them and you know isn't going to waste your money and you get a long package of events you know you could you can do better than that but mm-hmm. um, get you know a 50 50 no makeup deal when I hear about those and I hear about sometimes people say yeah, and I got this friend who wants to, you know, put me in all these tournaments, and it's just I get half of whatever I make in all in all in all the tournaments for however long. And I think, God, the amount of money I could make if I had that oh, deal. Oh, right, right. Um, you know, if you give me that deal, I hit the road tomorrow. Yeah. And I could and I could spend close to a million dollars in buy-ins. Yeah. In the year, and I would do my very damnedest to make sure that my backer made a profit. But whether they made a profit or not, it's tough to say. It's it's hard to make somebody money with that kind of deal slanted so much. But I can tell you that I'd make at least half a million. In there. <laughs> right. Yeah, I might quit my job to do that at my level. Yeah, I mean, if you're <laughs> if you're free rolling for half of yourself, right? that's astounding. Right. Um, but typically, the way it works at the World Series is that people just sell action. They sell packages of, uh, like, my girlfriend Jordan um, just yeah. so, just sold out a package. Um, she put up a package that was about fifteen thousand, and. Uh, she sold it at 1.2 markup, which which is you know if you're much better than the field, mm-hmm. if you're a proven winner, you can you're not just selling action, you sell it and you get a little extra money to help pay for your expenses or whatever. Yep. And so she sold a package for about about fifteen thousand at 1.2, and she's that includes a ton of small buying events, three hundreds and five hundreds, and um, those are things that she's going to have a huge advantage in those fields. Right. So her backers can expect to make a profit long term, though they may not make a profit on this package. It's hard. It's hard you know, the variance is right. so high. Yep. Um, but they can expect to make a long term profit. But if she sold it at one point five, probably not. Um, right. Well, but that's even, how even, people usually do it. So I know, you know, I know thirty or forty poker players this summer who have you know sent me links to their what their packages of uh, of investment are. They're typically between like thirty and fifty thousand right. for most players. Well, even I'm selling an action fox, so I'm I'm going out there. Actually, a few of us are going to road trip out there, and the only bracelet event I'm playing is the marathon. So, you know, don't play that one. Just stay out of my way. Leave that bracelet to me. Uh, but but <laughs> I even might for not me, you know, play that one. Actually, play. it sounds terrible. Well, you know, I think it, it sounds it's a, like such a grind. It's I know, just, I know. For, but for somebody like you who likes poker, that's great. <laughs> Right, right. You need to play a ton of poker in that event. Exactly. But for yeah. me, it sounds like, oh God, that's just days and days and days of poker. Oh. Yeah, that's what. That's the interesting dynamic. I've talked to some people like, man, that sounds awesome. And others are like, that sounds horrible. For me to play a bracelet event, that's a great structure for me. <laughs> but, Absolutely. But we'll we'll see how that goes. So the structure is unbelievable. It's one of the best structures that's ever been. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's a five day event for twenty six hundred dollar buy in hundred minute levels, and you start with twenty six thousand chips. 
I don't know if they'll get it done in five days. Oh, really? If they get a lot of people, it's going to be tough. Well, the, the interesting thing is, like, the Millionaire Maker starts, like, the day before. So, I don't know. Oh, so they may not get a big They may not get it. And you can, well, you can no, lay register. No, because I think people will people will bust the Millionaire Maker and play that event. Yeah, and you can lay reg and, the marathon up till the start of day two. So, you really have two days in the Millionaire Maker to bust before you can. And if you late reg on day two, you're probably still getting a reasonable amount of chips. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's still plenty of chips. You've only they played, might like, end up with a huge field in that thing, and if they if they do, if they end up with a thousand players, mm-hmm. I have trouble imagining they'll get it done in yeah. five days. Yeah, I think they're only playing like six levels a day or five levels a day or something. Yeah. Yeah, Must you're not five. gonna get rid of a thousand players by level thirty. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it should be a good time for me anyway. But uh, we'll see how that goes. So let's let's shift gears a little bit. Um, let's talk about your book. Uh, it's one of the books that I've just loved, and I'm not saying that just because you're on the podcast. Um, you wrote it a few years ago. I don't remember what, what year it was, but I still remember uh, one of the things I loved about your book called No Limits um, is really uh, giving me an idea of starting hands. I loved how you presented that. Uh, you don't need to talk about that in much detail if you don't want to, but just generally, what was the experience like of writing the book? Are you pleased with it? What kind of feedback have you gotten? And is there any is there a book in the future? <laughs> I, I I am pleased with it. I'm glad that I wrote the book. Um, I I have a huge number of notes for a potential volume two that I'll never write. Uh, Just not interesting I, to you at this point? or I learned in the experience of writing volume one how hard it is to, to communicate complicated ideas. Right. And um, volume two is much, much more complicated. Mm-hmm. Volume two gets into all the, you know, all the things that you can consider and how to really what the best players in the world are thinking. Mm-hmm. So when when one of the best players in the world is playing in a, a deep stack no limit cash game and they're they're in some pots, um, they will think about what do I know about my opponents? What are their hand ranges? How are their hand ranges weighted? Are they more likely to do one thing with another thing? Then they're thinking about what do, what do they think that I think about them? What's the whole table right. dynamic? What do they think about me? Um, then we go into combinatorics. If their range is, um, jacks through aces, ace, king, and sixes for a set of sixes, cause there's a six on the board, then how often do they have each piece of that range? Mm-hmm. And you can, you can start by weighting it. I think they would make this play half the time if they had a set, all the time if they have aces, a quarter of the time if they have tens. And then you look at, and then how often, you know, and, and they'll make it, uh, say, half the time if they have ace-king. Um, but the combinations of ace-king, with 16 combinations of ace-king, that's more than the combinations right. for, you know, aces Pairs. through queens. Yeah. So you end up, you know, with this super complex situation. And then you have to think about, given my hand, say you have a set of fours, um, how do I make the most money given the pieces of their range? You know, if I'm if I'm always going to pay off the set of sixes, then I don't care about those and they become irrelevant because mm-hmm. I can't because I, I'm not going to change the pot size in, by playing it any different way. If he's already got sixes, I just can ship my stack over to him. Good for him. Buy in again. So then I think about only tens through aces and ace king. And if he has ace king, how do I make the most money? Because he has that with this frequency. And if he has jacks, do I want to play it fast now because because an overcard will scare him? But then if he has ace-king, do I want to play it slow now? Because right. he may catch an ace or a king. All those – it becomes an, uh, an incredibly complex game. 
And with volume volume one, I I started writing, and I ended up with eighty thousand words that was not a book. It was it was like having a car a garage full of car parts instead of a car. Hmm. And so I sent it to Adam, who you know was my poker buddy and taught me a lot about how to play. And also is a very accomplished writer and, and really knows the craft of writing. Um, and I sent it to him and said, "Hey, I got this thing, and I, you know, I kind of like gave up on it a year ago because I I don't know what to do with it, but I thought you should check it out and see what you think." And he said, "This is great. Let me make it a book." Right, right. So he rearranged it, and then the two of us worked on getting it kind of where we wanted. But it, it wouldn't exist without him. He. Yeah, I did not have the ability to look at those words anymore, and and to try to organize them and figure out how to put them together. So, well, you got you guys did a great job because it's it is a very readable book, and I do appreciate the effort that was put into that. Because sometimes you do pick up a poker book and you've got to fill in all of that, you know, the, the stuff in between yourself. Whereas this, I could pick up and actually read it like a book. So I do appreciate the effort, but I can't imagine how much time and energy was put into that. That's all, Adam. If it's readable, it's because he made it that way. I, I, but I learned a lot from that experience too, yeah. and I learned a lot about writing from seeing what he did to the writing. And so then my articles and magazines got much better, and I started to get compliments on, hey, you, you communicate complicated concepts in ways that people enjoy reading them, and people would say, when Squansky writes about this topic, it's it's impossible to read because it's so dry and you do a better job with that. And that is entirely from the experience of writing the book mm -hmm. and seeing how Adam handled the, those situations and from talking to other writers. And, you know, it's, it's a th thing that I learned from that experience is to, to be able to do some of that. But I didn't learn nearly enough about it to make volume two um, even remotely <laughs> well, possible say... given how much pain in the ass it would be. <laughs> well, and from a, you know, I don't know you really well, but you know, we've had enough conversations that I know that, uh, you know, you've got uh, you've you've got thought out perspectives on the world. You've got thought out. Per you've got these great experiences, kind of globally. And I think all of that comes in too through you. I mean, you're not a one trick pony. You're not poker, nothing else. You know, you've got these great experiences. You've got great thoughts on how life works and all these different elements. And you're an incredibly bright guy. So I think that helps too because that comes through because I think you're naturally going to be be able to think. Well, that you know, I can communicate that kind of like. You know, this would be communicated. So I think all of that comes through as well. Um, but let, let's shift gears, man. I know I don't, don't have enough time with you. <laughs> but I, I did want to get a little bit more to the strategic side of it. But starting with, all right, you're, you're a successful poker player. You're making a living doing this. You've been doing this for a while, ever since you had to quit guitars, drive the cab, and figure out what you want to do with your life. But, you know, what what would you say looking over the course of your of your career have been the biggest keys to your success? Like, what are those things that really are the underpinnings of, of your success as a poker player? It really has been study. Um, a lot of it's been studying. Uh, I think what what a lot of players have who would like to be pros and fail, uh, they have all of the drive to play. They love to play. They like playing more than I do. And they'll play 70 or 80 hours a week if they have to, if, if that would make them a living. But they don't want to study. And studying is huge. Um, writing about the game and teaching has been really helpful in making me a better player. But at the beginning, all that studying I did, you know, that six months where I studied constantly in the yeah. cab, and then, and then probably two years after that where I studied all the time, 
while I was playing and, and in between playing, I was really, uh, you know, I think that I gave myself the equivalent of, of a master's degree in poker probably in terms of studying in that two and a half years. Mm. And that's really how you have to treat it. You have to be professional about it. People have this idea that you, you know, you got some guts and you're, you got the capability to bluff and you know you could fold hands when you're beat and then you just go play and you you let your talent shine and that's just bullshit. 95% <laughs> of talent is hard work anyway. Yeah. And, and, uh, that's, that's like the idea that I think I'm going to be an engineer. Um, I'll buy a calculator and print up some business cards. It doesn't, it's not going to work. It's never going to work. Right. And when I was in the music world, I had the same kind of experiences. People, and it attracts the same kind of people who have the same kind of lack of understanding about how it works. And people would get a band together, jam in their garage, drink beer, tell people they're in a band, and then be mad that they weren't discovered. Mm-hmm. Well, build a website, get on SoundCloud, yep. go play gigs, play free gigs, pra- practice five times a week, sober or close to it, and... <laughs> Go take music lessons. I mean, pe- people people have this idea that it's just like you get high and drink beer and play music and rock and roll, and they don't realize Slash has a degree from Juilliard. Right, exactly. It's, it's not like that. Um, the same thing is true with poker. You don't have people who you know, never study. They just suddenly rock it up through the poker rankings and, and win everything. I mean, you know, Fedor had that amazing year last year. Mm-hmm. He's been making online poker training videos for a couple of years yeah. that that everybody in the training world thinks are some of the best videos ever. You know, this guy not only studies, he teaches. Mm-hmm. It's not like he's just a whiz kid who showed up and said, "Hey, I'll play poker," and like suddenly crushed everything. He's been studying himself for years. Yeah. No, you see that. Uh, everywhere. I think that's been that's been my my strong point is my ability to learn and the fact that I enjoy learning. And I think that's part of why I'm not enjoying poker as much as I used to. Because it's there's less to learn, and the learning is harder to do as it gets to be more complex things. Yeah. Um, and I think that you know most of the time that I spend at the table is not learning; it's grinding, and the grinding does not entertain me. If I could have a job where I just learned how to do new things all the time and yep. and you know taught them to people, that'd be great. You know, make me the troubleshooter for a company where I just go figure out how to solve the next problem. Yeah. Best job ever for me because I'm constantly interested. But grinding it out at poker. It's not as interesting for me as it used to be. Yeah, this is why we're wired so similar. Like, you know, I'm in the corporate world and, you know, whether I stick with the company for a long time or not, like every year to two years, I'm switching jobs just because what's the new problem to solve? You know, once it's solved, I'm not that interested in managing it. You know, what's the, I'm, I'm glad there are people, but you know, what's the next hill to climb? What's the next thing to tackle? Well, if you ever uh, need opportunities to teach and you want to, want me to get a group of recreational players together and we'll make it worth your while. So you can come teach us all you want. Um, I'm ready. I'm ready whenever you want. I, I actually really like teaching. Um, I signed on with the WSOP Academy as one of their coaches. Um, I'm, I'm about to start with a new poker training site. I really enjoy teaching. Um, the individual lessons that I do, there are kind of only so many hours of those you can do in a week, and then and, and then it kind of burns you out because it's a lot of work. It's it's giving individual lessons is a very intense experience because right. you're typically working with advanced players about advanced concepts and you're, they're paying you a lot of money and you can't be wrong. You can't make mistakes. You got to be really on. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I can only do so many hours a week of lessons before I, before it makes me nuts. But in terms of like working with groups and stuff, 
I really enjoy that. If you want to set that up, I think it'd be a ton of fun. Well, let's, let's chat about that more offline. I think you know, even uh, even some Skype stuff or whatever. I got a bunch of people. You know, if you're part of the podcast listening in, if you want to be part of this, give me a shout. Let me know, but maybe we can work something out. Uh, let's let's uh, switch gears just because I got a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about, and you got to get to your tournament. Go win yourself a bracelet. Um, biggest mistakes that you see less experienced players make. I mean, I know I've made some blunders against you too, but you know, whether whatever the stakes, what are those buckets of mistakes that you consistently see players making? How can you know? What are those holes that most of us probably need to plug? Players play too many hands. Everybody plays too many hands. Um, it's a psychological thing. It's not only not only do we want to be in on the action, but we don't want to be a nit, and and we, we're convinced that. Um, that players who are too tight are making as big a mistake as players who are too loose. Hmm. A lot of people have that belief and it's not even close. Um, maybe 10 years ago or something, I played the WPT shooting star at, at Bay 101 and I had a number of shooting stars at my table and Steve Brecker was two or three to my left and I stole his blinds all day and he didn't play. He was the tightest player I've ever seen. And at the end of the day, he bagged like a half a starting stack. And I was walking away from the table and I asked somebody, who won this event last year? And they said, Steve Brecker. <laughs> and I thought, how the hell did that happen? And it really pointed out to me yeah. that, you know, sure he didn't get a lot of hands that day, that it, part of it was that he wasn't, wasn't run good for premium starting hands, but really pointed out to me how tight you can be and still be successful. Now, if you, you know... If you find a player who's equivalently loose, who's playing, you know, half the hands, they're going to be out by the by the middle of day one every mm -hmm. time. They're never winning a tournament. Um, and a lot of people have this idea that they play pretty tight. They think I play pretty tight because they play tighter than the average player. Mm -hmm. Well, the average player loses money hand over fist. Don't measure yourself by the average right. player. Um to be honest, I probably play too many hands. I play more hands than I would recommend most of my students play, often because I convince myself I'm good enough to make this hand profitable in this spot, and sometimes I'm probably wrong about it. Mm -hmm. um, and I play tighter than the average player. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest mistakes. And then the other one is the assumption that we talked about absolute versus relative value of hands. Um, the absolute value of your hands is a set of fives. That's what you have. The relative value of your hand could be you have a set of fives on a king-jack 9-5-4 board where no one raised preflop. You probably have essentially the nuts. Mm -hmm. Or the relative value of your hand could be you have a set of fives on a board where there was a raise and a re-raise preflop, and it's an ace, queen, jack, five, ten, <laughs> five diamonds board, and you don't have a diamond, four diamonds board, <laughs> right. and you don't have a diamond, and your hand is worthless. Yeah. Um, that, that, you know, some players, everybody has some idea of that concept. That extreme example that I just gave is pretty clear to most players. But most players are really using far too much absolute value of their hand and not enough relative value. Mm, that's good. That's why, you know, 
uh, I fold queens pre-flop and I show somebody and they look amazed. But in those situations, my queens are garbage. Hmm. Um, you know, some players would be amazed if you fold tens pre-flop. They're just baffled. Right. Like, no, the tightest player at the table raised under the gun, and I three bet, and and then another really tight player who's smart who knows both of us four bet, and then the under the gun guy went all in. <laughs> what what am I beating here? Like, right. is there any possibility the under the gun guy has jacks or ace king? No. So my queens are garbage. And I just throw them away mm-hmm. it, because the, the the relative value of those of those two queens is is nothing, um, and most players seem amazed by the folding two queens because they're they're kind of psychologically stuck with I don't I can't fold these I don't have I, it's it's unacceptable it's a premium hand I can't get away from it yeah and there's a cognitive bias there yep. Um, that really makes it hard to let go of things that we think we don't think we should have to. Um, it's like the world doesn't care that you got queens and somebody else got kings. <laughs> right. No one has any sympathy for you, and the pot's not going to come to you any more often because you got queens and that sucks for you. Right. <laughs> but we have this idea that that it should. We have uh, you know a number of cognitive biases that that make us want to hold on to those queens, whether it's to show the table how bad we ran, whether it's to refuse right. to accept that that. Um, endowment bias that we think things are worth more if we hold them you know all those kinds of things and you can you can see that bias in people when they when you show them the nuts on the river and they look at their hand they pick it up they tap it on the table a couple times they stare at it some more and you you know as soon as they pick it up and stare at it that you've won right and then you're waiting and you're thinking do i have to call the clock on this guy to muck his damn hand (laughs) Um, when you see that, it's a super valuable tell. Yeah, it tells you that they have that they have real trouble letting go of a hand. They have that bias that makes them think I'm worth more than that. My hand is worth more than that. I shouldn't have to do. You know, they they refuse to believe, and they're not a believer. And so, you know, don't bluff them. Right. But you can value bet them to death because yep. they have real trouble letting go of a hand. If they can't fold a hand when they've just been shown that it's beat, they sure can't fold a hand when they're not sure if it's beat. Well, that's good. So, so we have the buckets. We got we got too many people playing too many hands. We've got absolute value versus relative value. Any other big buckets of things you see people constantly making mistakes on? I think a lot of people don't think about the the implications of their bets. So when we talked about the, you know, the hand becoming irrelevant, like mm-hmm. with the fours versus a set of sixes or, or an overpair, people don't think about those things. So they're thinking, uh, just on, on the first level, I have a set of fours I should raise, or I have a set of fours I should call so that people won't know that I have a set of fours. Mm-hmm. They, they're not considering how do I make the most money with my set of fours, which right. is really your point. Um, they're often thinking, how do I protect my hand? I don't care about protecting my hand. I care about making money. Right. I don't write checks with protected my hand 400 <laughs> times. I write checks with dollars and I care about money. So um, the, the concept of protecting your hand doesn't mean anything if you can't say because it makes me the most money at the end of the statement. Hmm. Any poker statement – when you're talking strategy, if you can't end that statement with because that makes me the most money in this situation, then it's not relevant. 
And I think that's something that people miss. They, they've, they, everybody wants to have a system. Everybody wants to just know the secret. I've had tons of students who just get frustrated with, well, why don't you just tell me how to do this? Because <laughs> well, it's, it's the most complicated game in the world, right. that's yes. why. Yeah. Uh, there's not a simple secret. And if you're living by a simple platitude, you're going to get destroyed. Um, you know, the mm-hmm. idea that you should raise with good cards and fold bad cards, as soon as you get above nickels and dimes, doesn't, isn't, <laughs> isn't going to work. Right. Um, the idea that you should then switch it up and raise your bad hands to bluff people out and call with your good hands to keep them in also doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You have to be multiple levels above that and realize it's a very complicated game and think about how am I going to make the most money with this hand. Yeah, that's good. All right, just jumping in here once again to remind you that Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour on comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. Hey, let me uh, let me give you a... Uh, I'm going to give you an intentionally super vague scenario, all right? This, this podcast right. really isn't about specific hand scenarios, but I like to give this one out there. Um, and you're going to say, what? I don't have enough information. That's that's my whole point. Um, so I'm going to give you this vague, this vague uh, scenario... I want you to tell me, based on how your mind thinks, what are the most critical pieces of information that are missing? All right? So the vague okay. situation is this. Under the gun raises, the cutoff calls, and you're on the button with ace-jack. What are the most... I, I mean, I know we're missing a ton of information. That's the idea. What are the most critical things that you'd say, I, I can't even start to make a decision without knowing this? Given that it's... Ace Jack, and it's not a great speculative hand. I'm not uh, stack size goes down in importance a little bit. So I would say uh, knowing who the player is under the gun is the most important thing. But uh, the same thing I go through with you know a lot of my a lot of my students. The first few weeks will come to me with hand situations like this, mm-hmm. and and I a lot of them have told me they learn the most from having to figure out what they're going to tell me about the hand and then what things, what questions I'm going to ask. Mm-hmm. Because you have to know, what do I know about the under-the-gun player? What is his hand range here? What is his stack? Is he going to pay me off if I hit? Can I outplay this guy? Uh, how much money am I going to win if I outflop him? Am I going to lose a big pot if he outflops me but I hit something? Um, what kind of range does... The cutoff have, can I three bet and make these guys fold? How often are they going to fold versus how often is the under the gun guy going to four bet me? Is he going to four bet me so big that I have to fold? What do I know about the blinds? How likely are they to four bet if I three bet? How likely are they to three bet if I call? How likely are they to call if I call? If one of them's terrible and he's going to call if I call, then it, it might get me in the pot when it wouldn't otherwise because getting a really bad player in there is great, mm-hmm. especially when I have position. I want to know what the table thinks about me. Um, you know, Everybody's stack size, everybody's hand range, how, every, how well everybody is going to play on the flop, all those kinds of things matter. And then if you're in a tournament, uh, where are we in the tournament? Right. You know, Are we at the final table? Are we uh, close to the bubble? Are we in the third level? That matters a lot. I'm going to play diff- very differently according to tournament payout structure in those spots. Those things all matter, but 
I think it's interesting to think um, to think about what we know about players just from vague information. Mm-hmm. You know, when we when the cutoff calls, no matter who that is, unless there's a player behind who's just very reliably going to make a big overraise trying to steal this raise in this call, unless we have that specific situation, the guy who called doesn't have a big hand. He has a speculative hand. He's trying to outflop the under-the-gun player. Mm-hmm. That might mean that he knows some things about the under-the-gun player. If the cutoff is a good player, then probably the under-the-gun player isn't very good. Because a good player is not trying to play against another good player who has a much better hand than him <laughs> when he doesn't have to. right? So if Phil Ivey raises under the gun, and I have a pair of sixes in the cutoff, Unless I have a good reason to think one of the blinds is going to call and they're terrible, I just muck my pair of sixes. Why don't I, I'm going to outplay Phil Ivey after the flop with the worst hand? No. If I flop a set, he's not going to give me enough money to make it worth it. Hmm. And if I don't flop a set, I'm never winning the pot. It's just not worth it. So if the cutoff is a good player, then the under-the-gun player isn't a good player, and I'm more likely to call. <laughs> if the cutoff's a bad player and the under-the-gun player, then the under-the-gun player may be good. And and then do I want to play with the cutoff as the bad player? You know, And if the cutoff, if the under-the-gun player is good, then I know the cutoff probably isn't very good, or he has a very strong speculative hand. He has ace-queen of hearts, or he has a pair of nines or something, and he doesn't want to mess around with three-betting and folding to a four-bet against this good player. You know, we, we can really learn things about players even from very vague situations um there's one that i like to give students um you are your first hand at a new game and you're in the cutoff you don't know any of these players there are it's a it's a one three no limit game and there are two limpers um you limp the small the small blind limps so you got five limpers behind total and the big blind raises to $10 from three. Mm-hmm. What do we know about the big blind? Can you think of anything that you know about the big blind? Are you, are you asking me? <laughs> yeah, can you think of anything that you now know about the big blind? I'm just diligently taking notes. <laughs> well, I, uh, what do we know about the big blind? Well, I mean, first of all, I don't think it's a significant enough raise to actually push people off, right? Um, right. I think, um, yeah, I mean, so I would say immediately, I would say that they're, they're not, uh, they're not a great player, uh, because they're not, they're, well, they're, because I think they're either making a mistake, either they have a premium hand and they're not betting enough to isolate, um, or they have a weak hand and they read some book that I can try to punish the limpers and then they don't know how much to raise, um, because they're, they're clearly going to be playing this pot out of position. Absolutely. I don't, I, I don't know against get, I don't know against how many players. They're going to get at least three or four callers. Right. Playing a pot out of position with whatever they have. Right. They're not going to know what their opponents have because they're not getting any information because they're not enough yeah. to get any information. They're giving away that they have a hand while getting no information from their opponents and playing the pot out of position. Um, I cannot think of a hand where a good player would make that size raise. Right. Now, there are occasionally weird situations where I'll do weird things because I know what it's going to trigger or what's going to happen because of it. But but very rarely would a good player ever make that play. 
Because the first the good players the, either going to raise to twenty, right. or they're going to call. Because the first caller, the first potential caller is going to get what they have twenty five in, and they got seven to call. And then once you get the first call, then they're all in. Yep. Yeah. Um. So what we know about the the big blind is almost certainly they are an inexperienced player, and they probably have a reasonable quality starting hand, but not a monster. Mm-hmm. Um, an inexperienced player with aces will sometimes do that, but usually they'll make it quite a bit bigger. Okay. Um, they'll do it with ace queen or ace king a lot more often than they'll do it with aces or kings. They'll they'll make bigger raises with those bigger hands. But we definitely know that's an inexperienced player. I mean, we we've seen one action from this player, no showdown, nothing. But we've learned this mm. is an inexperienced player, and we have a pretty good idea about their hand range. Yeah. So you can extrapolate a lot of information from fairly vague situations when you're sitting at the table, and then. If there's one caller and then the second caller makes it 70 bucks to go, mm-hmm. we learn some things about that person. That either uh, they knew what was coming and they were setting it up and they don't have much of a hand, or they were being tricky with a real hand in a bad spot, but they're definitely a tricky, weird player. We know, we now yeah. know, you know. Or they sense we, the we, same we, thing that we sense that this guy's raising with. You know, a moderate hand, and he sees it as an opportunity, right? Maybe, but you're betting seventy to win, like yeah, I suppose to win thirty, twenty-eight. Yeah, and, uh, it's pretty risky because yeah, so the guy might really sense. have a hand. Yeah, um, you know, and so really, it's not a good play unless you know exactly what you're doing, mm-hmm. unless you've really set up that play, you know, and you really know the players. Yeah, and if you knew one player at the table, like say you know the first caller and he's the only person that you know you know the first limper um and when the guy raises to 10 the guy that you know who you know is a good player makes it 35 now you know for sure the big blind's terrible because <laughs> because the guy you know that's good just raised to isolate him but not so much as to make him fold hmm he wants to play a pot with this right. guy in position, in position, and he wants to make it bigger, and he wants everybody else out. So this is his fish. Yep. So you've seen a good player make this play that indicates that this other guy is really as bad as you thought from his initial $10 raise. <laughs> Extrapolating all those good things from, yeah. from vague situations, you know, you can learn more from them than you think sometimes. That's good stuff, dude. So we, I want to make sure you get to your tournament in time. I don't want to be blamed for costing you a bracelet here, but this is... This is fantastic. I could literally talk all day, but uh, let's just shift gears here as we close off. Uh, you know, how can people touch base with you? Are you doing coaching? Are you taking students? Uh, what kind of what's going on in your world? Uh, in in addition to actually playing poker, kind of supplementing everything else that you're that you're doing. You know, I I have trouble saying no to business opportunities. <laughs> I've always got a million things going on. I'm about to start with a new poker training site. Um, I've got a ton of other stuff in the works. Um, they can contact me, blindstraddle at gmail.com, uh, at foxpokerfox on Twitter. They can go to foxpoker.com, my website. Any of those things work for me. Um, I'm in the midst of launching a poker tour on my own, which, you know, because I didn't have enough on my plate yet. Yeah, I've heard that about you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've, I've gotten better at occasionally saying no to something, but it's still tough to do. 
Well, do you want to you want to what so the 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 tour and, and the training site? You want to talk a little bit more about those, or are they still too early to really uh, share details about? Uh, the training site's just, I'm going to start making videos for a new site. Uh, okay. Ivy League shut down. Mm-hmm. So uh, I took my, you know, I, I talked to a few other training sites and decided I liked a particular one. And uh, they don't want me to do an announcement until we have a bunch of videos to really sell at once. So, uh, but I'm, you know, making more videos as we speak. And uh, the tour is, I have worked with a number of poker tours. Um you know, I, I was the ambassador for the MSPT and traveled with them for a while and learned a lot of things from Brian. Mm-hmm. Um, then I went to iNinja and the PPC and, and learned some things and learned how not to do some things. Mm-hmm. Um, when I saw that iNinja is having a lot of trouble and the PPC went under and ripped everybody off, yeah, um, that left a big hole in the market. And... Uh, I think it needs something needs to be done that's a, a less expensive event for casinos where they can actually make a profit. Um, that is a good event for players where we're guaranteed good structures, good percentages, um, you know, good rate numbers. Uh, I think players will be really excited when they find out that someone is doing those things. Um, I'm going to actually turn down events if. Uh, if a venue doesn't want to, if they say no, we need to charge more rake than that. I'm going to say sorry, we can't, we can't come to your casino then. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, generally, tours would never do that, but but right. I think if I'm going to get into the market, I have to do it a little differently. Um, that market is already locked up. I mean, if you look at the Midwest, and and I'm not really looking to be in the Midwest exclusively. I'm I'm kind of anywhere in America. Um, but if you look at the Midwest. Competing with the MSVT is going to be really tough. Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to compete in their price range, you just don't you don't have a shot. It's they're, they're, they're too good. I mean, Brian and I haven't always gotten along, but he works really hard and he's built a big thing and with a big following. And it's going to be very hard to compete with that. Yeah. You have to do something different. And uh, I don't think that I compete with any tour at the moment. I don't think that I have – there's any tour that is, is going to – be hurt by our joining so i'm not as worried about competitors because we're doing things very differently we'll be talking more about how we do things differently when we kind of do a hard launch after the world series mm-hmm. but um the way we do things is going to be very different it's going to be a, a pretty unique poker series and we can include other tours and other one-off events in what we do so we may have events with um a number of other tours we may have we're going to have a charity event in every one so if we do something in, in minnesota we definitely want our charity to be all in for africa that'd be great oh cool well yeah i'd love to partner uh, with you yeah it'd be a ton of fun um yeah every at the end of our tour on our sunday there's a charity event at every one of them and that, i think that's something some tours are missing out on yeah, very a charity cool. can really help you promote as well as you doing something good for the charity yeah you know so, so we'll look I'll, for more details kind of uh, that, that August time frame maybe or after the World Series sometime? Yeah, probably in July, probably in late okay. July. Okay. And, and uh, what I need right now is a great sales guy. Uh, I had a business partner who I thought was going to be that and it didn't really work out. But if somebody knows the casino business mm-hmm. and wants to sell a poker tour and knows how to sell, 
um, you could have a part-time job that makes you a lot of money per hour. So if, if you know anybody, if anybody's listening to the podcast, get in touch with me because that's a thing I need. It needs to be just the right person. So don't be offended if I'm if I don't think you're just the right person because I'm looking for a very specific kind of thing. But um, if anybody's looking for that kind of gig, I, I I need somebody like that. Yeah, get in touch with Chris directly, or feel free to get a hold of me, and I can I can connect the two of you as well. Uh, for sure. Well, anything else, Chris, going on? I, it doesn't sound like much. Yeah, I don't have a lot going on. I'm pretty relaxed. <laughs> uh, honestly, it was a pretty chill winter for me. It's kind of it's harvest season now, but yeah, um, during the winter, <laughs> a lot of times, I you know, I woke up at noon or one. Okay. Go out to Red Rock at by two o'clock <laughs> and go hike for the day. Uh, on the way home, we'd eat dinner somewhere at 7, and then I'd go play poker all night and then get up the next day and do it all again, and it was great. And, and Vegas winters are better than Minnesota winters? or A little bit, yeah. A little bit? <laughs> it's maybe, I mean, you know, 50 or 60 degrees better maybe. <laughs> yeah. That's it, no big deal. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> and it, Just being able to be outdoors, I'm so much happier. Yeah, I, for sure. <laughs> I would leave Minnesota typically for February every year anyway because it would just be driving me nuts. But. Yeah. Um, this year I just left Minnesota for, you know, I left Minnesota in December and didn't go back until it was warm out. <laughs> nice. Which is usually around June sometime. Yeah. <laughs> I was back last week and it was fine. It was, it rained a lot, but I missed the rain when I'm in Vegas so much, so it didn't bother me. Okay. Fair enough. Well, let's, uh, why don't we wrap it up here? I think we got a plenty of things that we can chat about offline as well. And, uh, maybe maybe do some things together with with uh, some group coaching and that sort of thing. But uh, at some point, Fox, I'd love to have you come back and we'll break down some specific hands. Would you be open to that? Absolutely. Fantastic. And look me up when you come out for the series. I, I know where all the spots are to get in trouble in this town. Okay. No, <laughs> that sounds good. Just again, just stay out of my way for the marathon. I'd like to win the bracelet, and I don't want you standing in my way. So if if we can make a deal there. Uh, I'll let it's you have two be or three a lot of your people own. in that fine. tournament. It's unlikely that I would end up <laughs> right. at the table anyway, but I probably won't play. <laughs> know, right. All right. Well, uh, any final words before we go? If you make the final table of the marathon, I will be there with a huge crowd from Minnesota drinking and loud. Oh, I love it. All right. That sounds like a deal. Verbal is binding. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Fox. Thank you. All right. Once again, thanks to Fox. Thanks to the uh, Running Aces Casino and Racetrack. Thanks to Free Poker Network. And thanks to all of you for supporting what we're doing, just having a ball doing it. A great honor to sit down and chat with some of these guys and learn from them uh, and hear their uh, their approach to different things. So, again, if you have any feedback, reach out to me, stevefredland at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, at RecPoker. Join the Facebook group, RecPoker. And good luck to all of you out in Vegas. Good luck to myself. Hopefully next time I report back to you, we've got some good news on some things. But until then, we will chat with you next week.